Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining Karen and I. We're excited to get started. Um, we have a program set out for you to talk about uh, fundamentals on custody and parenting. And when Karen and I were present or preparing for this program, we were talking about um, you know, what we should cover. There's a lot, there's whole days that are devoted to the subject of custody and parenting schedules. So I thought it would be helpful to know if people want to sort of point out in the chat how many years of experience they have, because that can help us sort of go through the rest of the hour. But in preparing for this, um, one of the things I was saying to Karen is I've had a lot of clients say to me very recently that they uh, they just want sole custody. And I found that it's really helpful in embarking on their case to find out what that means to them. So when they say, I want sole custody, to say to them, what does that mean to you? What exactly are you looking for? Um, because there are, as you'll find out, if you don't already know, two different parts of custody, legal custody and physical custody. And while that's what Mass General Laws Chapter 28 says, 208.28 says, a lot of times, and Karen can talk about how often she uses this, a lot of people talk about parenting plans, how often kids are going to see and spend time with each of their parents. So a lot of times while parents are hung up on the language of it, when you actually peel back and say to them, okay, you want sole custody, what does that mean? They often will say, well, I want them to see their other parents. Okay, how often do you want them to see? And they'll outline some schedule and in fact, not really sure what they actually mean by sole custody, but they want the other party to have contact, parenting time, all of those things, but they hear these words custody and they just seize onto them. So. When we go forward, we're going to talk about sort of conversations with clients, uh, assessing expectations. Karen's going to talk to you a little bit about that, but really getting into those conversations with clients will serve you well going forward, not only to figure out what are what our disputes are about, but what are your clients looking for? Karen, you want to get you want to move on from there? Here we go. All right, so um, first I just wanted to reiterate, thank you, Jen, the difference between legal and physical custody um, and joint and sole custody. Physical custody is where the child lives predominantly um, and legal custody is who makes the major decisions in the child's life. And there's a lot that goes into how to determine what is the best parenting plan for your client. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But first and foremost, you have to have an open dialogue with your client and you have to have developed a rapport with your client so that they feel comfortable talking to you about, you know, the most intimate aspect of their life, which is their children. And clients, of course, are emotional and not always rational when it comes to their children. So it's our job to listen Um but also to determine whether or not your client's expectations are reasonable and what that's going to look like as far as an actual plan that you're going to present to um, the opposing party and ultimately have the court approve. Um, so first and foremost, have an honest and open conversation with your client about what does parenting time look like? What is what has been the schedule? So you have a sense of what what the foundation that you're working from. Um, is and what realistically would they like to see happen? What is their ultimate goal? Um, I've also had <clears throat> most recently some clients just say, I don't want them to have any parenting time whatsoever. I want sole custody and no parenting time. Um, and Jen, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are very few cases that I've seen um, except for really extenuating circumstances. And those are issues of immediate safety for the children or for the other parent where there's no parenting time at all. So it's really imperative that you have those open and honest conversations with your clients and make sure that you assess what their goals are and, and whether or not those goals are realistic and in line with what the law, what the law will allow you. And even I will jump in, Karen, at that yeah. point, even in those circumstances where there are safety risks for the child, oftentimes courts are going to 
order supervised parenting time. You know, if there's issues of substance abuse and um, there's been allegations of sexual abuse or things like that, the court is likely going to err on the side of caution. But even in those circumstances, there is going to be supervised parenting time because there's a lot of literature out there that, you know, I'm going to put social, I'm going to put sexual abuse aside for right now, but in instances where there's substance abuse, um, that cutting off all contact is equally as traumatic for children um, in those types of situations. And that's where really not only having an open conversation with your client is really important, but also having that conversation be really educative for your client as well. When they come in and they say, I don't want them to have any parenting time and there's not really a basis for doing that, um, that's not going not to bode very well for them in court. Thanks, Jim. Did you want me to start with this one? No, um, I, I think um, there are, I mean, Karen can probably outline a hundred different parenting schedules. I can too. It, and they really, I often, I, Karen may have the same experience. Clients will say, well, what's a typical parenting plan? And there is no typical parenting plan. It's what works for that particular family based on their kids and their needs. Um, certainly there are some usual parenting schedules that people will often default to, but every family is different. Kids' needs are different. Sometimes you have kids who are at very distinct and very wide age ranges, and that may throw different um, different factors into the mix. So you're really looking at how old are the kids? What are their needs? Where do the people live? You know, do they live really far apart? Do they live close together? Do they have a car? Are they taking public transportation? Where do the kids go to the school? Do they go to school in district or do they go somewhere else? How do they get to and from school? What are the parents' jobs? Are they working nights? Are they working weekends? Do they have a rotating schedule? Or do they work Monday to Friday? So all of those things go into figuring out what a parenting schedule is so that they don't feel like they're in a cookie cutter and you don't feel like you're trying to put them into a cookie cutter parenting schedule. Um, depending on how old the kids are will dictate whether or not the kids have a say in the parenting schedule. Um, there's a whole program that we're not really going to talk about today, but attorneys representing children where you could find yourself in a situation where the children of one or both or however many kids there are could have a, an attorney representing them that are now taking a role in this case, sort of advocating for what the kids want, irrespective of what the parties want. And sometimes there are special needs of kids that factor into that, medical needs, mental health needs, a whole host of other things, educational needs that also dictate how the parenting schedule should be crafted or what special attention should go into crafting it. So there's all of that you need to sort of be mindful of and the focus should be on as opposed to just thinking, well, this is the plan that makes the most sense because it might make sense on paper, but when you start to implement it, it might not make sense um, for that particular family. And one thing that I would also add is when we're talking about the age and the needs of the children, oftentimes I'll have clients say, well, they don't want to go see their father. So, or they don't want to go see the other parent, their mother. Um, and unfortunately, your child may be of the age where the court is interested in what their desires are, but that factor in and of itself is not going to be a determining factor. Um, so they may be able to voice their wishes and they may be able to articulate that through a guardian ad litem or an ARC attorney, which is an attorney representing the child. But that in and of itself is not going to be the determining factor as to whether the children see both parents. Most important to the court and what the law supports is what's in the best interest of the child. So it's not even about necessarily what the parents want or what's most convenient for them. It really is about what is in the best interest of that particular child. Did you want to add something to that? No, I didn't. I thought we said it was perfect. Okay. All right. So we do want to talk about some general provisions that should be included in when you're drafting a custody plan. Um, 
and we can just take them one at a time um, and we can alternate, Jen, if you want. Sure. Um, first and foremost is there has to be what we call the general provisions and recitals. And this is what it, it's sort of boilerplate language, although it changes and you should be careful of just using boilerplate language because laws do change and statutes change and things like alimony reform happens and changes in child support. So you want to be mindful of that boilerplate language, but it's typical language that you find in the beginning of any custody plan and and also in a divorce action as well. Um, And that's just basically outlining what people's rights are, what their privileges are, what the expectations are, that it's This agreement is the only agreement between the parties, whether or not the agreement is going to last forever or whether or not you can modify it. Agreements that um, concern children are always modifiable, um, just as a matter of public policy. Um, But that's typically how an agreement starts out with those general provisions and recitals. Did you want to go to alimony? Yes, when I can stop coughing. Oh, that okay. So I'll talk. We're going to let Jen cough and <clears throat> get that out. Um, the second provision is, um, and this is typical in matrimonial laws, 208 cases, divorce cases, and that's your alimony provision. Um, whether or not there's going to be alimony, as we know, there um, is the new Kavanaugh case that's come down. So you want to um, give that careful consideration when you're talking about alimony and child support, there's lots of trainings that have happened. If you need to brush up on Kavanaugh, I think all of the bar associations have trainings that have been recorded um, that you can get further detailed information. But when considering alimony, you definitely want to make sure that you understand what the term of the alimony is and um, whether or not it's going to survive um, or whether or not that's something that's going to be modifiable. But again, that's mostly, not mostly, that's that concerns cases where the parties are actually married. Uh, child support is, as Karen just said, with Kavanaugh's now inextricably tied to child support and alimony. So familiarize, familiarize yourself with the Kavanaugh case. Um, at least for now, rumor has it that may be changing, but for right now, it's still very much law. Um, in cases that, you know, typically it used to be combined $400,000, you were in child support and anything over and above that, you were alimony. Not really the case anymore, but, you know, child support, um, I know this is custody and parenting, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but the money always comes up um, when you're talking about custody and parenting plans, because inevitably you are going to have a client come to you and say he's only looking or she's only looking for this schedule because it means he or she pays less child support or I want this parenting schedule and then you're suddenly counting days of the week or days of the month to figure out whether it's a 50-50 parenting schedule and it's more than two-thirds, one-third. And so how do you run the child support guidelines? Back when Karen and I, years ago, it used to be the middle ground between the child support guidelines, and that created a whole host of other problems. They've now done away with that. But it hasn't really, really done much effort to now that they've done away with that because you still have the huge disparity for people who have 50-50 and people who have more than two-thirds, one-third. So I say that only because be prepared that that is going to come up in in the half, if not more than half of the cases that come up in parenting. The allegation is going to be someone is only looking for parenting time so they can pay less child support or they want more parenting time because it's somehow going to impact their child support obligation. Do you agree, Karen? Yes, yes, I agree. Sorry, <laughs> got ahead of myself there. Um, I agree a thousand percent. And Unfortunately, the courts will consider how much time the child spends with one parent, but certainly that's not going to be a determining factor as to what a parenting plan should look like. Um, Money is not going to be the determining factor. Just a few key provisions that are important when you're considering drafting a plan, and then Jen and I are going to go into the essential clauses of what's important specifically for custody plans. Um, 
definitely need to have a provision for medical insurance. Um, I represent a lot of indigent clients um, for marginalized communities. And even if um, MassHealth is the primary um, medical insurance, you still need to address it in the agreement. Um, and one issue that comes up for low-income clients is um, whether or not they can stay on MassHealth when there's a private insurance that's available. Mm -hmm. um, typically, judges will see that as against public policy. They'll want the private insurer to insure the clients. But there are certain circumstances where um, the courts have allowed people to maintain MassHealth if there's a really unsteady work history, for example, and the child has extraordinary medical needs, um, then you can maintain mass health um, as well. But I just wanted to point that out. Education of the children, um, who's going to pay counsel fees if there's a breach in the agreement? We're going to go into the details of the custody and parenting time now. And of course, you do want to discuss who's going to be able to claim the children on federal and state income taxes. Even if your client makes a limited amount of money, you want to do at least a cursory review of the tax benefits so that you can make an informed determination as to um, what is going to best help your client and the children. Um, and why don't we transition now into the essential clauses. We'll leave it here for a minute. Okay. Um, do you want to do essential clauses or do you want to sort of talk about what happens if you can't negotiate this? Why don't we start with talking about what happens if you can't negotiate this and then I'll jump into essential clauses. Okay. So in a perfect world, you um, your client has told you what they want. The other You've heard from the other side what they want and you're not that far apart and you can negotiate a resolution and you're going to have these eight topics and you're going to we're going to tell you about those essential clauses and you're going to reduce this to if it's a divorce a separation agreement and if it's not a custody support and parenting agreement and you're going to present that and they're going to go on their merry way and they're never going to call you back again and that's the likelihood of that them not calling back calling you back slim to none but if you can get them to an agreement fantastic if you can't then there are a couple of options for you. If you are able to negotiate, maybe they have counsel, maybe they don't, but if they do, even better. There are a couple of alternative dispute resolutions, depending on what county you're in. Several counties have conciliation programs that are offered for very reduced costs. Middlesex, Norfolk, Essex, Plymouth, I think has one as well. Um, and those conciliation programs are staffed by members of the bar and they volunteer their time for somewhere between two and eight hours to help the parties try and conciliate their case and come to an agreement. Those programs are very successful, very helpful. Depending on the means of the parties, you can ask for the probation department to do an investigation and report. Uh, and depending on how how busy the probation department is or what the issues are in dispute, sometimes you'll have success with probation coming in. If it's an enormous issue, Karen, you can speak to this a little more. I've had, I've had it where if it's a very finite issue, the judge may be more inclined to have probation come in and do a limited investigation or speak to a child, maybe on an issue of school choice or some sort of targeted issue. If it's, you can't decide anything and everything is up for grabs, and then you're going to be more hard pressed to have probation come in and do an investigation because that is really taxing the probation department's resources at this point in time. If that's the case, you're likely looking at a guardian ad litem investigation. Two categories of GALs is a category E, category F. Category E appointments are evaluators, they're mental health professionals, which means they can make clinical observations. Um, I would say diagnoses, but most GALs who are category E's will not actually make a diagnosis in their report, but they're able to make clinical observations. Uh, category F can be mental health or attorneys, and they are, um, they can, even if they're a mental health professional, they are not making clinical observations in their report. There's a new order of appointment that has come down in the past year or so. And there are boxes on the form where the, the judge who's making the appointment is really checking what issues they want the guardian ad litem to investigate, custody, parenting, uh, 
legal custody, uh, substance abuse issues, and then a box that they can write in if there's something special. There's also three different types. If you, I think the order of appointment was one of the materials we sent. There's a brief focused evaluation or assessment. There's a regular guardian ad litem appointment, and then I'm missing one of them. But you'll see on the form, there's essentially three different boxes. The judge can check which one of those boxes. If you're getting a brief focused assessment, then the, they're not. you're not getting a full GAL investigation. You're not getting them going and looking at all the, assess, all the parties' backgrounds and everything. If they are looking for, look, this one issue, school choice is contested. I want you to go do an, you, GAL, go do an investigation. I'm giving you 10 hours to do it. You're not going to get a 50-page report that gives the background history of both parties on anything and everything. You're going to get a very targeted assessment on that very issue. You have anything? Did I miss anything? No, you didn't. The one thing that I would add, though, is if you do have a case where there is um, interpersonal violence or substance <laughs> use disorder, then you want to make sure that the guardian ad litem has specialized knowledge and experience in those particular areas. Um, representing clients, particularly when you're dealing with uh, domestic violence, that's an area of expertise in and of itself. And if you are going through a guardian ad litem investigation, it is an opportunity um, to protect your client, but also advocate for your clients. So I just wanted to um, note that as well. No, that is a really good point. I will say, I'll add to that and say, if there's counsel on the other side and you can agree upon who the GAL is, so much the better. Because in that case, if you know what the issues are, for example, substance abuse, sexual abuse allegations, domestic violence or intimate partner violence, you can find somebody who has specialized knowledge and that will be better for the case. It's very hard to find a guardian ad litem right now. People are, their wait lists are enormous, averaging four to six months. So if you have counsel on the other side and you know you need a GAL, do your homework in advance. Call the other lawyer. Say, I'm filing a motion. I think we need a GAL. See if they're on board. See if you can find somebody who's able to accept the appointment and what their timetable is for accepting it. Because if you go into court and say, we've contacted five GALs, this is their time frame. this is someone who can accept the appointment, you're better off. In the absence of that, you're going to get someone appointed off the list. Some of those people are very talented and exceptional. Some of them have less experience than others. If you have certain issues in your case that you know require specialized knowledge, you may or may not get someone off the list who is going to have that specialized knowledge. Once you get an appointment off the list, you cannot change it. So if they they accept that appointment, that is your GAL and there's nothing you can do about it. Okay. With that said, um, again, if folks have questions, please feel free to just put them in the chat and we're happy to answer them as we go along. <laughs> So some of the provisions that you want to ensure that you include in a custody plan, um, and we've mentioned it previously, and that's custody. What's custody going to look like? Um, who's going to have primary custody, Mean if there is going to be primary custody, meaning where is the child going to live? Um, there's been this move towards not identifying custody. Um, Jen, you can weigh in on this. I don't know how this is going to land. I'm not a fan of that. I think that you have to have a designated person if for no other reason for issues such as where the child is going to go to schools, where where is the school district, et cetera. Um, unless you have individuals who have the ability to get along well and who have a history of being able to um, negotiate with one another and to resolve issues then I think it is um, it could be setting yourself up, your client up for a contempt or a modification if you don't specify legal and physical custody. And of course, legal custody is who's making the major decisions. And you can get creative with custody plans when it comes to physical and legal custody. Perhaps there um, is a situation where the parties do communicate to come to a decision as far as a major life decision. Um, but one party has the final say. Or before that party makes a decision, 
there can be an agreement that they will utilize um, the recommendations from any providers or therapists that are involved in the family. You can be creative in what the custody plans look like, but I'm always thinking of how to protect my client and how to ensure that they have a custody agreement that they can rely upon and that's enforceable. And again, I I'm, I keep bringing up the issues of safety and other issues that come up because I think it's important. Um, I don't negotiate my client's safety when it comes to issues of custody. And I think that's really important to keep in mind too, um, especially when you're at the tail end and you're negotiating and you really think you have an agreement and you want to get it signed. Um, you just want to be mindful too of what that's going to look like and what issues that may raise for your client if there are other red flag issues that we typically call them. I agree. I I think when you have you're representing clients who are have been victims of intimate partner violence, it's a completely different dynamic of negotiation. On the flip side, I've seen people go who don't who are not who do not have that issue in their case go to the mat on insisting that they need to have primary physical custody. And that I think becomes problematic if both people are living in this, I'd rather I'd rather draft around that if I can. If both people are living in the same town, then I think, you know, they're both in the same town. They both bought houses or they're both living in the same town. And then I think they've made that decision. If somebody's going to leave, then I don't think somebody can unilaterally change a kid's school if they have joint legal custody just because they decide they're going to change a kid's school. Um, so I think, um, and I think that sometimes people use that safety concerns aside because I that I'm not negotiating, but I think sometimes people are looking for that primary custodial designation for those types of reasons. And I'm always cautious of that on the flip side. I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. Um, so with that said, you don't have to designate custody at all. You can just say the child's right. primary residence will be with this particular parent, and this is what the parenting plan will look like. Right. Um, and that's worked in many cases as well. So again, it really is dependent upon the individual um, details of your of your clients' lives and what's worked and not worked right. for them. Or designate a school system. I've done that. The children shall attend this school system for so long as one or both parties reside in this town. And then it eliminates that as an issue, too, if you think that's going to be a something going forward. Absolutely. Um, the Did you want to go for the, mm. you want to do the next couple and then I'll take the next couple? Up sure. Okay. Um, I think sort of when you're, you know, taking off from the custody designation, if you're whatever the parenting schedule, whether you're going to designate a primary custodian or not, you need to be really detailed in what the parenting schedule is going to be. You know, I, and I've seen seen people say, well, you know, we get along well, we communicate well. And, and if they do, that's fantastic. But that may not always be the case. Um, people repartner. Um, permanently and temporarily, um, and that often throws a monkey wrench into communications with their former partners. Um, and I always say to clients, you can always agree to deviate from the schedule, but the schedule should be a baseline so that if there is a disagreement, you know what you can go back to. And if there's ever a disagreement and somebody isn't doing what they're supposed to, I can't enforce in a contempt, uh, you know, something that says, well, we're going to share Christmas. If you don't have this is what the Christmas schedule is, then there's nothing that is going to hold somebody to that. So if you're going to make that decision to do it, the more detailed you can be, the better you're off. You're going to, the better you're served. There will always be those clients that do not want that level of detail. I think your job is to really educate them on the pros and cons of the detail. Ultimately, it's their choice to decide my preference is, is typically um, for a clear, well-defined schedule, something that sets forth, this is the pickup time, this is the drop-off time. If there's no school, this is what you do. If there's somebody calls in sick, if the kid is sick, if a parent is sick, if somebody's traveling, nitty gritty details. And people think that's a little bit crazy, but after doing this for as many years as I've been doing it, I think the less you leave to chance, the better off you are. Um, and I would add, in addition to that, um, a really detailed holiday schedule as well. Agreed. 
and um, cultural competency plays a part in this as well. So know your clients and what holidays they celebrate culturally, religiously, what's important to them. Um, There are times where I've had, you know, recently I had a case where the 4th of July was a huge deal for one party and Halloween was an equally huge deal for the other party. So, you know, that was an easy fix, but just to be mindful of what holidays come up um, making sure that you cover all of them. And in addition, if you have school age children, you know, their um, winter break and their spring break and a summer schedule. And I would just add to the three day holidays, what happens mm-hmm. on those weekends as well. Um, right. And the child's birthday tends to be um, another point where you need some real clear um, clarification. Mother's Day and Father's Day, that usually is self-explanatory, but I would just add those as Mm -hmm. well. You want to have as much detail as possible. So defining when those occur, because it means different things. Some people are okay if a kid doesn't wake up at their house on Mother's Day and other people are like, no, 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 I need the child to wake up at my house on Mother's Day. I, I feel somehow it's, you know, at a loss if that's not the case and those are really conversations you need to have you know and then you have those people it's like it's mother's day i don't want my at those clients too like no 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 uh, it's you know it, it runs the gamut and your your job isn't necessarily to is just to understand and I'll, i will just add on the cultural competency piece you know when a client talks to you about the holidays and the religious celebrations that they observe actually say to them do you observe them because I've had those clients that say, well, I want all these holidays. And you say, okay, what do you do on them? What has been your historical practice? What did you do as a family? And they say, oh, we didn't observe them. Well, you can't just ask for those holidays because now you want to start a new tradition so that you can start carving back parenting time. So I would just have some of those conversations with them as well. And also being mindful of families where you may have to split Mother's Day because they're two moms, or you may have to split Father's Day because they're two dads. So just being really mindful of the family dynamic as well and honoring um, what that means to your particular client and the family as a whole. Right. Or even people who have family who are out of state and they means they have to travel. So for Thanksgiving, some, you know, that means that you may not be splitting that holiday or it may mean they have to travel a further distance. So it's, You know, you're taking that extended holiday for things like Thanksgiving and Christmas, or if one, you know, depending on the holiday celebration, Christmas may not be significant for one parent. And so they, you know, it may not be a big deal for them to not have that time. Um, But I think those are all things that if you have a conversation with your client, it's very clear that you can put that in the agreement as well. And just as a practice note, and you probably do this too, I have a list of provisions that I need to go over with my client, like a cheat sheet, if you will. It's long, but it's so that I don't remember those really intricate, important details when I'm drafting it. And I ask my colleagues, what do you include? What are the things you ask? What are the provisions that you include? Because inevitably I forget something. Um, So definitely reach out to the community as well and, and ensure that you're having a really inclusive agreement. Also key um, pick up and drop off is huge. Mm-hmm. When, where, how, who can be there? Um, you know, is it going, are, are you sharing transportation? Is there a midway point that you're going to meet? Is it going to be at somebody's house? Are you going to wait outside? Um, or if you have little, you know, itty bitties, are you going to walk them in? Um, if there are new partners, you know, whether those partners can be present or not, if there are safety concerns, um, are you going to have a, a third party do pick up and drop off? Um, or are you going to perhaps have it at a um, a police station? So really detailed plan for pick up, drop off, who's there, who can't be there, um, times and provisions for whether or not somebody is going to be late. Um, I usually have a provision in there saying if you're going to be X number of minutes late, you need to call. If you're going to be over a specific time, um, then that visit will have to be canceled. And then you have to determine whether or not there's going to be a makeup visit. 
If it's an emergency, do you want documentation? So again, these details, it may sound like you're really getting into the weeds, but it's really important when you're dealing with missed time and what that's going to look like and what type of notice that each parent is going to give the other if something should happen. And in in addition to that, what happens when the child is sick too? Um, Because it might be a situation where it's, you know, strep throat, you can send the child with the antibiotics and everything will be fine. Or if it's a situation where the child can't travel, does that mean that the other parent comes to your house to see the child? You can be creative depending on what your family dynamics and the interpersonal relationships are with the individuals. Right. I I don't know if you do this in your parenting plans, but I also will include, depending on what the parenting schedule is, if the call comes from the school that the child is sick or school's canceled because of snow, when, like who's responsible for attending to that call? Is it the person who dropped off in the morning or the person who's picking up in the afternoon? Right. Because I've had, and it changes depending on the family, but I've had both of those provisions, you know, depending on the family, be the controlling provision. Um, and people, it runs the gamut on who wants to do what, but those are, <clears throat> those need to be attended to as well. So the call doesn't come in from the school and it erupts into a big fight and the kids sitting at school not getting picked up. Um, and, and in addition and sort of alongside that, also, what happens if visits are canceled and the other parent has to work? Who's going mm-hmm. to provide daycare? Whether there's going to be a reimbursement for um, childcare as well is really important. Yep, yep. And, and I know we're talking about this, but I, that's also who can provide it. So if a parent has, you know, something has canceled or some, you know, school gets canceled and neither party can cover because they both have to work. Who's an appropriate caretaker? Is it a new romantic partner? Is it another, you know, a grandparent? Is it another babysitter? Can they each use each other's? Are there a set list? Do they get veto power over a child care provider or not? Um, or are they each responsible to find their own and that's it? Um, I think that's also a lot of people, you know, that's something that you need to think about and parties need to consider as well. Agreed. Um, moving, moving on, moving on. Yeah. Okay. Um, moving on, um, contact during parenting time is really important as well in the day and age of, um, electronics. I think that's been made easier, but there's also been some challenges with that. So I do specify in my agreements if, um, during the other parents' parenting time, what's contact with the child going to look like? Um, is it going to be a good night phone call? Or is there going to be a FaceTime? I encourage my clients to have a set time so mm-hmm. that the child has the expectation, especially younger children, so that you can fold it right into their routine. They know what time um, that they're going to have that connection with the other parent. Um, and I also um, specify what the what the contact will look like. Is it going to be a phone call? Is it going to be a Zoom call, FaceTime? Um, who's going to be involved with the call? If you have, um, you know, toddlers and they're more chewing on the iPad as opposed to speaking to the other parent, um, who's going to encourage that communication? How long is the communication going to be? And that's also dependent upon the age and the emotional maturity of the child, um, how long they may or may not want to um, contact the other parents. One thing that I started to incorporate too is creating an environment that has um, few distractions. So designating a place for contact so that the child Mm -hmm. can um, give the other parent that time. And what happens if the call is missed as well? Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you want to add to that, Jen? No, I think that's all all valid stuff. Okay. Um, I think we talked about cancellations too, but just to reiterate what happens if visits need to be canceled, if it's not emergency, if it's not an emergency situation, how soon in advance does it make sense for 
the other parent to have notice if it is an emergency, what constitutes an emergency, right? Even that's important. Right. Um, and again, what happens if the other parent has to arrange for childcare and what, if any makeup visit, um, what is that going to look like? And when is that going to occur as well? Um, so that you can stay consistent with the visits. Yep. Um, kids' personal items, um, how is that go? How are they going to go back and forth? Um, does the child have a special stuffed animal or a blanket? And is that going to go back and forth between both houses? What about clothing? Um, are those going to go back and forth? Is it whoever purchased it goes back to their house or is the clothing going to free flow back and forth between both houses? Are there any other you know, if the kids are in school and they have backpacks and folders that come home from school that require signatures on it, um, any other forms that come home from school, what is going to, what is the expectation and how are both parties going to attend to those types of things so that stuff doesn't come home in the backpack, it stays at one parent's house and the other parent never sees it. Um, things, I'm going to sort of group this in with personal items, but that goes for school pictures and other um, important notices, not just the work that the child has completed, but other important notices that come home from the school. A lot of this is now electronic, um, but there are still those notices that come home from the school in paper. I think that's especially true from elementary schools. Less so, I think, for middle and high schools, but there's still going to be those forms that come home and the lack of communication between the houses can be really problematic. And also what you're going to do if somehow the kid has a musical instrument and they take lessons and they left it at dad's house and they go to school and they need it for mom's house for the next day. Like, how are you going to how are parents going to do this? In a perfect world, they communicate and they can get this done. But if they can't, what are they going to do? Um, and I know it seems like Karen and I are advocating micromanaging them <laughs> in some ways we are, um, and some parents need more micromanaging than others. You're basically going to have to get a handle on your client in that case to determine what level of micromanaging, and you'll be able to tell because you will have gotten a taste for it already by how many phone calls and voicemail messages and emails you've gotten up until this point about those types of issues. The blanket didn't come back. The instrument wasn't there for school. I didn't get the forms for school. The child went to school without the re requisite information. He canceled. He showed up late. She showed up late. There was not all of that stuff will dictate how involved your parenting and custody provisions need to be in your agreement. And the reality is um, our clients are feeling really vulnerable and out of control and they're grieving. And if they're not grieving their relationship, they're grieving what they wanted their relationship to be at some point. And so it's a really raw emotional time for many of our clients. And that's sometimes where this is coming from. Um, and you hope that even though there may not be trust between the parties initially, you hope that that trust develops and that they can amend the agreements and that they can shift and pivot where they need to. Um, but I agree that sort of, I hate the word micromanage, but I agree it is kind of what we do. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really to protect their interests and to make sure that they have an enforceable agreement and they're really clear about what the terms are and what the expectations are of their responsibilities as well. Right. Um, we talked a little bit about safety considerations, and I feel like that is a training in and of itself. But if you do have um, a client who is a survivor of emotional, physical, financial, any type of abuse, then it's really important that, um, one, you have proper training on domestic violence, um, and two, that you listen to your client and that you understand what needs to happen in order to protect your client from being further harmed, um, especially if they're separating from a partner who was violent against them, when they separate from them, typically that can be a really lethal time, one of the most lethal times for mm -hmm. your client. So it may not seem rational to um, those um, of us who are practicing and don't have a lot of cases where there is domestic violence. The concerns may not seem rational, perhaps, 
um, but they are real concerns and our clients are in the best position to assess their safety and they're in the best positions to guide the ships. So be mindful um, if they're working with any service providers. Granted, they are mandated reporters, but um, there are amazing DV advocates out there who can help with issues like safety planning and coming up with pickup and drop off and other provisions that may be, may be unique to someone who is a survivor of domestic violence. But again, that's a training in and of itself. I don't want to skip over it, but I also um, don't want to minimize how important and detailed this aspect of a case can be. Did you want to add to that, Jen? Nope. I exactly. I couldn't agree more with what you said. Um, new romantic partners. It's probably the last thing that our clients want to think of, but it's really important to at least have a meeting of the minds, if you will, as far as how um, soon the children are going to be introduced to a new partner, what that looks like, whether they're going to be at their parenting time if the new partner has other children um, and eventually this may be a blended family what is that going to look like what makes mm -hmm. sense and this is where um, you know the emotions can be really heightened um, particularly if that new partner happens to be part of the reason why the relationship deteriorated to begin with um, right. So you want to have that conversation. You want to make sure that the parties are really clear about what their expectations are when introducing new partners. I can tell you that courts in general, they want to see children be able to acclimate and have time to adjust. They're also grieving. And this is also a huge, they're resilient, but it's a huge change for them. So to the extent that you cannot force new people in their lives, even if they might be good, wonderful people who are going to enhance their lives, um, better to shut shut one door before opening another. That's been my sense when, when judges have um, given feedback on new partners coming into the situation. Yeah, I agree. And, and also, honestly, what constitutes a new partner? Like is, you know, sometimes people will say, I'd like a phone call. Before you think about introducing our kids to someone else, I'd like a heads up. So if they come home talking about Johnny, I have an idea of who Johnny is. Um, and if you've been dating Johnny for two weeks, maybe you don't bring him home and introduce him to the kids. You know, they, we're on the same page about what it means before we start introducing the kids to somebody new um, and that we talk to each other before we start mentioning this person or introducing this person to the kids. Uh, travel. Uh, those provisions are typically, you know, this is about travel. This is not removal. Uh, you can't remove a child from the Commonwealth absent the consent in writing of both parents or an order from the probate and family court. So this is about either party traveling with the children out of state um, and or internationally. And I've seen provisions about travel and, you know, sort of restrict it to it could be any number of things. It's okay for a parent to travel within the continental United States upon notice and provision of an itinerary, flight information, hotel, that kind of stuff. If you want to travel internationally, there are different notice requirements. Uh, typically, you you know there are provisions about who's going to hold a passport if the children have a passport. Is the country of that you're they're traveling to a signatory of the Hague Convention. We're getting into really detail. There's a whole there's lots of information about that. But essentially, if a country is not a signatory to the Hague Convention, and that parent abducts a child, it's really difficult to get a child back um, because they're not subject to international law. So, depending again, this gets into cultural issues and where are these parents from? Where is their family from? Um, and there, that can govern what the language is that you're putting in those provisions related to travel. You know, and are you, some parents want uh, restrictions or more notice if it's going to be a travel for more than two days or three days. Some parents, if it's going to be any more than an overnight, they want travel, they want notice. And again, that's going to be oftentimes dependent on how old the kids are, how involved or not the other parent has been, um, those types of things. And that's where you are going to need to have conversations with your clients. And 
be educative with your client about what is a reasonable a period of time or what is reasonable for the other person to expect to be able to travel and also what they would expect. Do they think that they should be able to travel without notice to the other person for a long weekend? And how much are they wanting the other person to be in their business? So if they want to go for a, way, for a weekend with their children, do they want the other parent to know that all the time? And if not, then they can expect the same level of notice on their part. Anything you want to add? No, um, actually, just one quick thing, and I, yep. I feel like it's self-explanatory, especially for international travel. I I typically will have the party who's traveling provide an itinerary and copies of, um, you know, the plane tickets and 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 identifying where they're going to be staying and contact information so that the you know in case in case of an emergency, really, but yep. also um, just because I both parents typically have a right to have that information. Yeah, I would, de I definitely do that with international travel. And I would do that if somebody is planning a trip within the United States and it's for, and they're flying somewhere. I think that that flight information should be provided if it's, even if it's just in the United States, I don't think that's unreasonable to, to provide that to another parent. If something happens, they should know what the flight is that their kid is on. Right. I agree. And um, just to reiterate, too, that it's really important to do your due diligence and determine whether or not um, the country that the party is visiting is part of The Hague. I think mm -hmm. that's not I think that is our responsibility as practitioners right. to understand those dynamics as well and to give our clients that information. You To that point, you know, that's also a question of does the child have dual citizenship? You know, how many passports are you talking about here? Is the child a citizen of that other country as well as the United States? Does that child hold two passports? Where are those passports? So it's not just a question of the United States passport, but a passport for another country as well. I think you're, it would be remiss <laughs> bordering on my practice if you didn't know the answers to those questions. I agree. Um, and one last thing to consider as well is I always have a provision that the parties can um, amend or adjust the agreement, um, but it has to be by agreement of both parties. And I will have that in writing as well, yep. um, because, you know, if depending on how old the children are, the parenting time agreement for a three-year-old is going to be very different than when the child becomes 11 or 12, which is going to be different than when the child becomes 13 or 14. Yep. Um, also, Jen, do you remember the um, parenting guide that we use, that the courts use to determine the ages if they're yeah, it's the AFCC guide for shared parenting. It's part of their, I gave that as part of the materials they got. Um, and that actually has some really good information about suggested parenting plans, depending on the age of the kids. And, you know, that younger kids often do better with shorter uh, periods of time, but not um, not long blocks. So a five day absence from either parent is too much time typically for a very young child. But an older child, now this is generally speaking. You know, could a four-year-old, one four-year-old handle five days away from another parent? Yes, they they could. But this is, you know, general guidelines. So I'd encourage you to go look, all of you to go look through the AFCC guide for shared parenting. It's very helpful. AFCC is American. I'm a member of it and I can't remember the American the Association of Family and Conciliation Courts. Thank you. You're welcome. They have a great website and they have a lot of... Um, materials that you can just download. I mention it not necessarily because I agree with all of the recommendations. I agree yep. it really is specific to your um, client's needs in the developmental stage of the child, but the courts consider that. So I Correct. think it's helpful to be mindful of what the courts are looking at when they make a determination as to what is an appropriate parenting time schedule. Yeah, I agree as well, Karen. Um, so we have about six minutes and I thought it might be helpful for us to talk about what happens if you actually are able to come up with an agreement, unless there's something you wanted to add that I forgot. Nope. nope. There's nobody there. I just want to make sure we have a couple of minutes to just mention parent coordinators if, if that comes up, but we should continue on this path first. Okay. 
Um, so these are some considerations when you are drafting an agreement and what the court is going to be um, looking for as well. Is the language clear and unequivocal, right? Is there any ambiguity whatsoever? Because if there is, then depending on the judge, you're going to have an agreement that may not be enforceable. And that's going to be really frustrating for your clients. Um, and again, I have my list of all of the provisions that I typically include, um, but are all of those provisions included in the agreement that should be in the agreement? Do you want to take it from there? Yep. You know, all, are all the rights and obligations of the parties clear? Is it clear who's doing the pickup? Is it clear who's doing the drop-off? Or is everybody, if somebody looks, if you gave this to a random person and they read it, would it make sense to them? Is it is everybody or are they thinking, oh, I'm not really sure what this means. If that's the case, then got to go in and clean that up. Is it fair and reasonable? If all things being equal, doesn't mean it has to be perfect, but is it fair and reasonable and based on the facts of this case? Um, so if there's a waiver of future alimony when there's a party on public assistance, probably not going to be fair and reasonable. If people have been married for 30 years and somebody is making a lot of money and their kids are all emancipated, a waiver of future alimony probably isn't so probably isn't fair and reasonable. Um, merger and survival. You know, if you haven't taken the the class on separate the fundamentals on separation agreements, take it. I'm going to spend a lot of time explaining to you what merger and survival is, but super important for our purposes today. Any provisions related to kids merge it means they're always modifiable by the court. But you need to make sure that the provisions in your agreement are consistent. So anything about the kids should be part of the part of the boilerplate that says it merges, means they could come back to court and change it if they need to. And any provisions they can't change, division of assets, that's it. It's done. You want to pick it up? Yep, sure. So then there's a colloquy that typically happens if you enter into an agreement and the court will go over this. But you want to make sure that you're not surprised by your client's answer when you're in front of the judge. And I feel like for those of us who have been doing this for a little bit, has all had that moment where we are a little bit surprised. Um, read it. I read it with my clients line by line. I just do. And I tell them, I don't mean to be offensive. I know that you are capable of reading this, but I want to make sure that you really understand it. But the court's going to want to know, did they sign it freely and voluntarily? Did anyone force them to sign the agreement? Do they believe that it's fair and reasonable under the circumstances? And you have to make sure that your client is going to feel comfortable saying, yes, they signed it voluntarily. And it may not be what the ideal is for them, but under the circumstances they believe it's fair and reasonable and in the interest best interest of the child um, and again if you have a client where English is not their first language I always have the agreement translated in their native language as well to ensure that they understand the terms one thing that I wanted to mention real quick Jen before you mentioned the ADR is yeah. to include the extracurricular extracurricular activities yeah. and I'll just say very quickly um, what extracurricular activities the child's going to be involved in, how are the parties going to agree, who's going to pay for them, and what happens if an extracurricular activity falls on the other parent's parenting time, just to have really cl a clear understanding about that. Right. I agree. And, and also, if there's beyond just extracurricular activities, like the typical, you know, town soccer, town, town hockey, you know, are they... Are they agreeing to cover other things, summer camp, um, other types of extracurricular activities that could be more expensive? Are they putting a cap on that or not? Um, and, you know, I'm going to throw this out there because I've started doing this. But are they what are they doing when depending on the age of their kids, kids get cell phones super early now? Is that are they agreeing to share those costs? What are they doing about cars and car insurance and all of those type tutoring? Because those can be not traditional extracurricular activities like you would think. They're not doing soccer or hockey, but those are certainly added expenses and can be very expensive. Car insurance, cell phone plans, um, those can all be very expensive. So are, they, are you going to include those or is that just going to be something they're going to 
deal with and address when it comes up. And depending on whether you're representing the person who is receiving the child support or paying the child support, you can predict how that conversation is going to go when that expense is brought up. Um, and then the final thing I will say, I know I just got a message that we're at time, but I'll just say this one other thing. You know, for those parties who have um, who have more difficulty than others communicating or resolving disputes, um, there are other options that you can write into an agreement um, to assist them resolving disputes. Again, you need to be attentive. They're called parent coordinators. You need to be attentive to if there are issues of domestic violence and intimate partner violence. I would say that those cases should not be referred to a parent coordinator. I think you're setting up the continuing abuse paradigm for those parties, um, not just in terms of the financial costs, but just the entire the entire dynamic, I think, is just perpetuated if you're setting them up for a parent coordinator. However, though, um, domestic violence cases aside, parent coordinators can be very helpful um, to keep people out of court. And if you have issues like how you're going to resolve makeup time, um, switches of parenting time, if issues come up in an agreement where they, even though we think we all draft really clear and unequivocal language where there is no um, things coming up, we're not all perfect. There is going to be some scenario that we never envisioned coming up that is going to come up for people. Inevitably, it does. And parent coordinators can be really helpful. Um, Come helping people resolve these disputes. My two words of advice are, you're not the person working with the parent coordinator, the parties are. So if you are going to suggest this, you should have them interview the parent coordinator. You shouldn't, you can make suggestions of people that they interview. Don't ever pick the parent coordinator yourself. You may love that person. You may have a wonderful working cordial relationship with them, but they're not making decisions about your life. So I would suggest that the parties interview them and make sure they can work with them. So I think that we are at time. Um, and I would say that if you, if folks want to reach out with questions, you, uh, you can certainly reach me. Um, and the BBA has our information. Yeah, I'm happy well. to take questions as well. And Jen is an amazing resource. So um, I think that that brings us to the end of our presentation. Noah? Yep, with that being said. Thank you for letting us go a couple minutes over. <laughs> no worries at all. But yeah, saying no questions. I hope everyone has a great rest of the afternoon. And thank you to our speakers. And have a good one, everyone. All right, thank thank you. you. Thank you, Jen. Thanks, Karen.